This time on Chew Diligence, Colby and Megan Geralt's. Fine dining is where we cut our teeth. And, you know, the the rye side of what we do is how we always cooked on, you know, the 4th of July. 15 years with Blue Stem. We were just happy to have keys and a lease and... <laughs> our own place to put food out at the time became more of our own as we grew. Rye. We, we are from the Midwest and we were had been spending all this time cooking from food that's you know European influenced. So I felt like all we were doing is just emulating fine dining and we wanted something that was a little bit more of our own. And balancing it all. You know when you have a baby everyone I remember they said like well what are you going to do? And I'm like I don't know. We're just going to we'll do. We'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll just <laughs> take go her work. and mm-hmm. she'll nap in the wine room I guess. <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Chew Diligence. So glad you're here with us. Lindsay Shively in studio with Jill Silva. And Jill, we have loved some barbecue lately. Hanging out with the Jones sisters. Did you finally meet them? Yes, and they're hilarious and warm and kind, and it was just really lovely. And Jill, the burnt ends were some of the best I've ever had. I have been telling you this, have I not? Yes. This is my favorite burnt ends in town, really, because they're very charred. Yeah. I mean, they're truly burnt. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think they're what they're supposed to be. They're a little bit fatty, a little bit chewy. Um, I, yeah. I To me, that's what, when somebody says burn ends, that's what it is. They're not chopping any brisket in there right. from, from the flat. It's all from the point. And you know the struggle that a lot of barbecue places have. They want to put it on the menu because people want it. Right. Well, the Jones sisters are... Mary and Deborah, they're pretty famous for when they run out, they yep. run out. Yep. They want fresh food. And this is becoming a little bit of a problem already before hmm. Queer Eye debuts because, well, you know. that <laughs> few Deborah, people watch that show. A few. Deborah can only cook so much, you know. She's kind of sitting out there watching outdoor smoker. Yeah. Uh, sitting on her bucket. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just talked to her. We're taping right now. It's March 14th and the show comes out the 15th. And she said she's getting there at midnight tonight early. She's cooking more than usual because this is going to be a phenomenon. Yeah. And it won't be enough. And people, please be nice to them. Please be nice. If they run out of food, they run out of food, go back again. That's part of why it's good. Exactly. Exactly. So they sold out on, when was I there? Friday, last Friday. And they felt so bad, you oh. know, and people are grumbling as they get back. Oh, I might as well go to Gates then. Well, guys, come on. It's part of the address. It's part of the charm. And I had seven up pound cake for the first time. And that was really good. That's brand new. Oof. That's that's since the queer eye makeover. That was delightful. Yeah. Very good. <sighs> love the Jones sisters. Love the barbecue. And we are really excited to welcome two guests into the podcast studio. We have Colby and Megan Geralds with us. Hi, guys. Hi, how are you? Hi, how are you? The fantastic chefs and co-owners of Blue Stem and Rye, very well-known restaurants in Kansas City. I've covered them for a few years. Just a few? <laughs> Maybe 15. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> Blue Stem turned 15 at, on the 15th. On the 15th. Says, yes. Yep. You know, a lot of restaurants staying open even five years can be a real struggle. What? How did you guys do that for both places? Rye has been open starting seven years now? Yeah, it'll be seven years um, like in the, in the winter, this winter. Yeah. How do, how do you keep it going? I don't know. Just keep at it. <laughs> <laughs> Never give up. You know. Yeah, it's definitely been layers, Not layers anymore, and layers but... of of great staff. Um, a lot of perseverance of trying to keep the lights on through the early years, and then you know, just the community is is the biggest part. I mean, if people keep coming and they keep supporting local, that is really 
that's all we got sometimes. So you got to keep people coming in the door. Yeah, this is the only thing we've really ever done. So, I mean, we really had no choice but to kind of keep going. <laughs> so. Now, Colby, you grew up here. <laughs> yes. So tell us a little bit about your trajectory. You You grew up here, you left. Yeah. And what made you come back? So, yeah, I'm born and raised here. Uh, believe it or not, I just I got into restaurants at a pretty young age. I started busing tables like 14. And it was basically just to have money, spending money. <clears throat> and I just, all the way through high school, I just, I cooked at bar and grills and, uh, you know, things like that. And then when it came to time to go to college, I really didn't know how to do anything else. And a buddy of mine was like, well, I'm go to Johnson County Community College and try out that program and we ended up going and yeah, I was there for three years and then uh, I actually was working at a, a restaurant mm-hmm. called The Stolen Grill, which is next door to Blue Stem now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Popeye and the chef that worked there at the time uh, was leaving and he strongly suggested that I do the same. <laughs> He's like, you should probably move to a different city and you know broaden your horizon. So I packed up and moved to Chicago and Megan and I met uh, at the restaurant we worked there um, and then traveled west and spent some time in Vegas, then Los Angeles. And I was really starting to get I – I really wanted a chef job somewhere and it was hard to find. And the, the industry was so much different 15 years ago. There was no food TV. The media was much different. And it was hard to find chef jobs at a young age. I think I was 28 by then. So, you know, I – kind of was like, I'll try to open something back at home. And, you know, we, I knew the landlord where Blue Stem is and I knew the spot was there and I knew it had been empty for a really long time. And I just kind of took a shot at it and started putting together a business plan and her and I kind of did it together. And yeah, I mean, we got it open. I I was 28 and she was 23 and we really just didn't know any different. So and you guys did a lot of the work on it. Yeah, we built the whole thing. paint and mm-hmm. the original you know. blue stem. Yeah. yeah, yeah, built it all, painted it all. Um, the kitchen was already there intact, so we just kind of refurbished what we had and maybe bought a few. I don't even remember what pieces we bought, if much of anything, equipment wise. We we bought new tables, or, or I think we built them or something. I don't remember. Yeah, I know. (laughs) We inherited the chairs and the pendants. You know, a lot of like the fixtures were there and changed the color palette. Um, And then about four years ago, we remodeled it completely, mainly because the floor was falling in in the kitchen. So Mm. (laughs) we had to stop and restart. Yeah, I remember hanging out with you and watching that transformation. Mm -hmm. So you closed right after your 10th anniversary. Right. Right. Yeah. So we went to the party. We got the whole look. And then you're like, yeah, all this weird kind of stuff that's happened to this place over the years because it's kind of an old building. Yeah, Yeah, very, very old. And at the remodel, it was our opportunity to really remake it with a style that we felt, you know, emulated a little bit more of what we were doing, you know, now. Whereas when we opened, we were just, let's open a restaurant. And we were just happy to have keys and a lease and (laughs) our own place to put food out at the time. But, yeah, it became more of our own as we grew. How would you guys describe Blue Stem's menu, your food? We've always called it progressive American, um, which I mean, it's it's fine dining. It's it's I, I we we very much cook to the seasons, as as cliche as that sounds these days. Um, you know, it's just a contemporary approach at modern cooking. I I, I would assume um, it definitely is. We have done a very good job of trying to keep Blue Stem in the era that it was when it opened. You know, food styles change. 
plating changes, you know, flavor styles change. And while we morph into it a little bit, we have really tried to kind of keep it original to what it was when we opened. Yeah, with the tasty menus that we do. I mean, originally we had just an a la carte menu and just a seven-course tasting menu. And what we found was people were wanting to have, you know, two pieces of the a la carte and then three or four pieces of the seven-course menu. So that's kind of when our tasty menu evolved into we'll do three, five, seven, ten, or twelve courses and then let people choose what pieces they want for the tasty menuers. Most times the chefs will tell you, this is your menu and this is it. We allow the guests to actually order, but they order it in a tasty menu fashion so they can see. And it's a great way for, especially like parties of four, if they all get the five course, they can basically taste the entire menu and you're not eating everything, but you can see the whole menu, which I think is really fun. And then the bar, we've always kept really casual, you know, burgers, our hanger steak, um, Desserts. We're bringing back the dessert tasting menu at the pastry counter now, so you can do that when you come in. Um, so we just kind of try to keep the vibe over there really chill. And, you know, if you want to just have a burger and a glass of wine, you can do that. Or if you want to have seven courses in the dining room, you could do that. So it's always worked well for Blue Stem, I think. I've always thought that was really neat. If you didn't have the budget to do the fine dining for the mm-hmm. moment, you could go to the fancy restaurant and sit in the bar yeah. and still feel like it was a special night. Absolutely. Yeah. I think giving guests that choice has been important through the years. And especially now with places we've dined and things we've seen, you know, fine dining has really, it's been dumbed down quite a bit. You know, people are, you know, doing away with tablecloths. People don't want to wear suits anymore to go out to dinner. They just want to relax and enjoy mm-hmm. themselves. And We've always tried to take that approach with Blue Stem. You know, we never wanted it to be too fussy or too stuffy. We just want people to come in and eat and enjoy our tables and celebrate or, you know, just come in for a business meeting or just because, you know. And I feel like that's happened well over the years. Describe some of the changes that you made when you did the renovation, Um, because I think I went back and looked at the article I did at the time. I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, wow, I forgot all the things you have done because it's been five years and it feels like, that's always been blue stem, but you guys did some pretty uh, big changes yeah. when you went ahead and renovated. Yeah, uh, you know, opening up the kitchens was a big part of it. Um, both the dining room side and the bar side, <laughs> we opened the kitchens on. Um, the pastry kitchen was always hidden in the bar, right? And um, it was important that that space didn't feel like a, a closet anymore. And it was like next, right next to the dishwasher. So hmm. in the olden days, you know, we were, it was hot and it was backed up in the corner. Um, so adding the pastry kitchen and opening up the bar really helped. Um, also with the dining room, you know, we opened the kitchen up to make one long, big, huge pass and table for the chefs. Uh, it helped a lot with plating and it helped with just the guests being a part of the dining room. In the old restaurant, you could see a little bit, <laughs> Into the well, I remember actually um, standing in there with Colby during service mm-hmm. and like I was I was trying to be so thin and like against <laughs> the wall and I was so in the way because of the way that thing was shaped. Yeah. It was very odd. Yeah. And now it's just so great because it's open and you can really yeah, see, see what's going on there. Um, it's, it's more of a show. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> we used to have to expedite off that small little table that I stood at and. Which it's, is, it's, it's now a, a, just the cutting board. If you look on the pass, there's a cutting board on the pass, and that was that, that was the actual pass that I used to use all the time. So it's still there. But uh, <clears throat> I also kind of wanted to open stuff up because it kind of forces the staff 
in the back of the house to kind of behave themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And Always myself, on yeah, myself <laughs> yeah. included, because I used to be quite a bear when we first opened. I was just young and, you know, trying to get control of everything. But, you know, having it open and everyone's on their best behavior, actually, they're just the kitchen culture and staff and everything is a totally different ballgame now. But yeah, well, it's, it's nice now. You call it front of the house and back of the house for a reason. In the back of the house, sometimes they like to hide. And, you know, being open and having an exposed kitchen lets them always, well, like Colby said, is on display. But also I think it gives our staff a chance to really be a part of the dining experience. Because mm. I always, like when I was in kitchens before we had our own, I always felt like I had a little bit of FOMO. Like I was missing out on what was happening out in the dining room. And so when you get to see it and be a part of, you know, who's coming in and actually see people's expressions when they put food down in front of them, I think is really important for cooks to see. And for them to see you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that. Mm -hmm. So when you were saying you feel like culture in the kitchen has changed. Yes. What do you mean? (laughs) It's just not such a, you know, when I was coming up into the industry, you know, fear was everything and chefs yelled and screamed and threw things and, you know, you tended to emulate that when you got into that position. And I, it, despite what happened naturally in the industry, I think for myself, I started to realize that <clears throat> whenever I yelled and screamed at people, they were more focused on me yelling and screaming than actually fixing the problem that needed to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And when I, you know, started to take more of a, you know, proactive or, you know, positive approach to, problems they they resolve themselves quicker and people were happier and you know people weren't late and you know, people stayed later and things like that and it's just yeah, I think that's happened industry wide so for the better mm-hmm. for sure yeah the culture's definitely shifted yeah and it needed to is that you were you were very um right out of the gate you were very successful you got recognized food and wine i think was the first time i ever interviewed you that was that was 05. 05? Yeah. Okay. That was a year after we opened, actually. Wow. Yeah. So so it was like, there's <clears> something <throat> really amazing going on here. You get noticed. Um, you've won the James Beard. You were nominated for seven years or six years before you won. Yes. Um, so immediately, tons of success coming out of the gate. And it continues today. But I, Yeah, I think we've had a nomination, a semi-nomination every year since 2006. Yeah, wow. which is yeah, kind of crazy. crazy. Megan, congrats to your nomination Thank this you. year, Absolutely. standing <laughs> pastry chef. Yeah, but how does that when you when you come right out of the gate and like people are recognizing you and then you just how does that change your culture within? I mean, because now you've got uh, you've got so much to strive for, right? And everyone yeah. under you, I'm sure you want them to. I think when toe I the line when I left here. I mean, the first place I went was Charlie Trotter's, and then we worked for Rick and Gale, and then I worked for Charlie Palmer. You know, it's like we worked for those kind of chefs for, you know, throughout before we opened our own place. So, uh, you know, maybe this was me being naive at the time, but I always expected those things to happen, you know, and I knew some of the right people. um, So I knew that we'd be on the radar to an extent. Well, it was interesting in Kansas City at the time. There, there. I mean, there were restaurants, great restaurants. There just weren't like they are now. You right. know, there were there was a handful of world class restaurants here, so the playing field was a lot different than it is now. And uh, you know, I think we just we watching Rick and Gail, for instance, when we worked for them, we really kind of learned how to market ourselves and how to market ourselves nationally. 
you know, we put together press packets and stuff. We didn't have press. We didn't have any uh, social PR. media didn't exist. Social media. So there was no wow. Facebook. We didn't no Instagram. We didn't have any PR companies. We didn't have anything like that. And we literally would make our own packets and photograph our own food and print it and like send it to Bon Appetit and send it to Food and Wine and send it to. So we walk it over to the Star when yeah. Lauren Chapin was there, and you know, I remember trying to get in and knocking on the door, like, "Please let me in. I have news for you." Yeah. <laughs> and it feels so silly now looking back on it, but it's like, how else would you? self-promote, you know, and I think the biggest thing that Rick and Gail taught us was that um, it's not just going to come to you if yeah, you, you really have, have to, to believe in your in your own uh, sense. And Gail at the time when I was in her kitchen, she was on her show, uh, Sweet Dreams. So she was going to New York to film at the Food Network. And I remember the day, she, you know, she came back from the Beard Awards after she won and she gave us all these like little notepads with cupcakes on them or something as a little thank you for helping me win this award. And it was really sweet just kind of watching her just how she buzzed around and what she did, you know, and like Colby said, I mean, we, we always positioned ourselves to work for chefs that either already had accolades or we knew were going to get some kind of recognition because we wanted to know what we wanted to work in those kinds of kitchens because ultimately eventually we wanted our own to do that too. And I think you have to be around the people you want to become in a sense. Yeah. It's where, where the clothes that, what's that saying? I don't know. Just for the job you want? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. It's it's interesting to think about a restaurant world and food world without the Instagrams mm-hmm. or you know, oh, social yeah. media today. So when you guys came out with your cookbook not soon after you'd opened, right? Was that the one that Bon Jung Lee had photographed? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I think that was what? That was, was that after 2010? Yeah, I think it was published in, I forget now, I think 2010. Seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere around. Well, you have two, we should say you have two cookbooks. Yeah, we yeah. have one. One's yeah. Blue Stem. One's Made in America, which is It's a little more based rye. rye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That one came out right before rye was opening. Yes. Right when rye opened, we had the Made in America book came out because we were developing recipes <laughs> that we actually used in the restaurant in that cookbook. So, And when you're sitting around thinking Blue Stem is going, it's on, it's on good pace, time for restaurant number two mm-hmm. what was the thought process to what kind of food you wanted right to be and why and all of that I had actually I mean we'd been talking about doing something for a long time one of the big big issues with us was trying to live out of blue stem was not easy it's small the sales are not great even though it's expensive it's still it's fine dining is, is expensive the staff's expensive the equipment's expensive the food's expensive so we wanted to do something that was a little bit uh, more, I think it was when we were writing the Blue Stem book, mm-hmm. we started to kind of realize that we we are from the Midwest and we were had been spending all this time cooking from food that's you know European influenced stuff that we were seeing in New York, you know, on the West Coast. So I felt like all we were doing is just emulating fine dining, and we wanted something that was a little bit more of our own. And I actually did uh, the very first James Beard the boot camp they do. Um, at Blackberry Farm in Tennessee, and it was just, it was kind of eye-opening. It was the first time I met Sean Brock and Cassidy Danby and a whole bunch of other chefs, and um, I just was kind of struck by the Southern influence and how uh, moved they were and how focused they were on the Southern experience, and I was kind of like, you know, we have all this back home, too, and I was, I'm a a surprise. I mean, barbecue has always been the driver, but we do have an entire, you know, heritage of food. You know, a lot of it has to do with the farms and the rural experience, but 
I was a little, I, I kind of sat down. I was a little surprised that more chefs back here don't focus on that stuff. They, they focus on locality, but not necessarily the heritage of the food that, you know, we, we have here. So that was something we kind of wanted to start to focus on. And Colby and I just started brainstorming, you know, what did we grow up eating? You know, what do we miss? What, what can we kind of get in Kansas City, but maybe not on a level that we want to take our kids to every night? Um, and then that's when the menu just started to evolve from rye. You know, I, I grew up eating, my mom's from Ohio, um, and I'm originally from Illinois. So my Midwest experience is similar. We don't have the barbecue side of it, but pies and cobblers and corn on the cob, fried chicken, those were things we had every summer. And we would travel to awesome restaurants, you know, out in some rural parts of town to go get those foods. Um, and I just, I felt like when I looked around, I didn't really know, you know, outside of Strouds for fried chicken, but there weren't a lot of places to go here that you could have a great yeah, bottle of wine. there's a lot of fried chicken in Kansas City now. Fanny. Fanny now, too. but I think we need to talk about fried chicken because I remember talking <laughs> to you about this when, you know, I'm like, what kind of food is it going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, trying to get my head around it. And you're like, well, we're going to do fried chicken, but, but not. And you do fried chicken, but you do it in a very, very different way. Yeah. Way the technique is different. Talk about that technique because I think that gives people sort of an a sense of this isn't just every fried chicken. And yes, there are a lot out there. How is rye fried chicken different? Well, of course, I have to overthink everything because that's, that's kind of what, what you we do, do, right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I was the first and foremost. You know, we wanted to not have the typical, you know, overcooked or dry or you know. I could complain about all sorts of things when it comes to fried chicken, but greasy, yeah, greasy, <laughs> and the whole thing. And it, it was, it's, you know, I don't know all the methods. There's pan frying methods. If we want to do pan fried chicken, we would need a kitchen that's twice the size of ours. Um, you can get away with it if that's all you do, but because we do so many other things, that we ended up having to go to the deep fry method. But we actually brine it overnight, and that obviously gets the flavor and, and keeps it juicy. Then we uh, we dry it. For another 24 hours, which is kind of the same method you do like Peking duck where you dry the outside of the skin. So when you bread it, it sticks better and it crisps better. And then, uh, yeah, we and then our actual mixture that we fried in, we don't use eggs or anything. And the actual it's just a slurry of flour and water and starch. And then it goes into flour and then we fry it. And then at the restaurants, we actually hold it in a what's called a CVAP machine. It's I know that's super technical. But it helps cook the chicken without overcooking the outside of it. And then we just flash fry it right before we pick it up. But it's just, yeah, I mean, it's something that we we worked and worked and worked and worked and worked on to get it right. And what do you marinate it in? Uh, it's it's court bouillon and herbs and lemon and, and sugar and salt, basically. Mm. So well, That sounds amazing. Very delicious. And, <laughs> and Megan, let's talk about pies mm. because you have an ingredient that – I think it's still in the pies, a uh, little bit of lard. Yeah, yeah, we always do 50%, so it's half butter, half lard, um, mm. and all-purpose flour, a little bit of sugar, a touch of salt, and water. It's a really simple recipe. I actually didn't have a family recipe for pies, so when we were making the Made in America book, um, I hunkered down. I remember it was like snowing outside, and we uh, just tested a bunch of different ratios, different fats, all butter, all lard, Shortening, I, shortening kind of freaks me out, so I don't use a lot of it in my kitchen. Um, I feel like if you're going to use shortening, just use lard. It's natural, and you know where it's coming from. Um, 
you know, and so whereas I like the texture that lard gives, it doesn't have a whole lot of flavor unless it's really smoky and truly from the farm. Um, but I also didn't want a smoky pie crust. So, um, you know, when you take, you get the flavor and the color from butter, but you get a lot of the texture from the lard. So it's a good combination between the two and it came out the best. And my mom's family has a pie recipe. She uses all lard and it's the most incredible texture, but the filling kind of takes over everything else because the crust doesn't have a lot of flavor. So like thinking back on childhood memories of things I've eaten and then trying to, you know, make my own. And then when you have to think of not only your family table, but you're selling to a consumer, you know, you want everyone. I was really fearful of the pie that people, I'd get a lot of, well, it's not as good as my grandma's or Mm. it's not as good as aunt so-and-so's. And it's actually been the opposite response. I've had a lot of good feedback from the pie that we do at Rye. But did people freak out on lard? No, No, I mean, I think sometimes the vegetarians are like, oh, shoot. (laughs) I want that pie. And they eat it anyway. I've seen a few people, a lot of people cheat or they just like close their eyes and pretend like it's not happening. Um, I mean, we don't, you know, if they ask, we tell them we certainly don't hide it. But uh, it's been kind of funny. (laughs) So these are really two different sides of of dining, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you guys, um, how do you split yourself? How do you kind of maintain an enthusiasm for both it's it's not always easy i mean that's for sure it's you know blue stem was really hard for a really long time and like i said it was just you know trying to live and the financial side of stuff is it wasn't easy um but you know i i kind of have passions for both like the you know fine dining is where we cut our teeth and you know, the the rye side of what we do is how we always cooked on, you know, the 4th of July. or So it's kind of the yin and the yang. It's the, the professionalism and the fun side of it. So you just kind of have to look at it like that a little bit. I mean, now we're, we've got three restaurants. Two of them are very large, and we have a lot of employees. So we actually have chefs and pastry chefs at each of the restaurants. And we're getting to the point now where I'm really starting to push them. Like, I've kind of had my day in the sun. You know, I'm a chef. I'll always cook. But running these companies and taking care of the family and taking care of all of them has definitely taken the priority, you know, in our lives. We've talked to some other folks on this podcast about how uh, they enjoy working at your restaurants and the bit of the the, the corporate structure, for lack of a better phrase, you know, yeah. policies you guys have in place mm-hmm. as a company that has so many employees. When was that shift when you started to realize or have you always had stuff like that? We've always had, actually, We've always had it. When we worked at Lettuce Entertain You, Colby said, you know, we emulated Rick and Gail in the early days. We also emulated Lettuce Entertain You's policies. I mean, I took their handbook (laughs) and I, we didn't have a scanner. So I just hand wrote everything I could. Our first handbook uh, was pretty sketchy with all my spelling errors (laughs) and grammatical stuff. But through the years it's, it's, we've added on. And I mean, like Colby said, with the culture shifting, you know, there's a lot more focus on just um, keeping culture good and sexual harassment is a big thing we keep an eye on. Um, You know, but we just, it's, it's more or less just a guideline to help everybody work together so that we can keep a nice working environment. We want our our staff to stay and be on staff. And when you don't have a good environment, people go. Yeah. Teamwork's pretty, pretty important in the kitchen, but I want you two to talk about the teamwork that you Mm -hmm. have going, because I really saw that in action when I was following you through the renovation. Mm -hmm. And I really gained a huge appreciation for what Megan does. She may not be out in front as much as, 
you know, you have been Colby because right. uh, everything's about the chef sometimes. Sure. But um, you do keep the lights on and you do complement each other really well. It's yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, when we had, you know, like we were talking about, we would we had to close last week before we went um, before we went out of town and. Uh, we had some mechanical issues and Casey power and light. And it's like Colby's worst nightmare is when, you know, the HVAC isn't working or the gas line, you know, needs to be adjusted or something like mechanically is malfunctioning. And my worst nightmare is there's no sales coming in. And how am I going to, you know, do all this? It was kind of like our two worlds colliding. And, you know, we worked through it and we get through it. But, you know, we just always have picked up the pieces where each other doesn't know or doesn't want to deal. Yeah, I mean, we've worked it. together for a long time. I mean, we worked together when we first met. I think when we lived in Los Angeles and a little bit in Vegas were the only times we haven't worked together. So yeah, we weren't it's, side it's, by side. Yeah. But you know, she she does a lot of the day to day stuff that I have <laughs> no interest at all. You know, the, a lot of the office work and you know dealing with vendors and stuff like that. Where. I'm more of the project guy. Like when we decide to open a new restaurant, it's, you know, getting all that stuff together and, you know. Yeah, he kickstarts the projects and then I'm the one that's like, well, wait a second. Where are we going to get the <laughs> The details? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's really nice and all, but how are we going to do that? <laughs> i got to imagine that comes in handy as a pastry chef because yeah. details yeah. are everything, yeah, it right? Is. It's, it's yeah, I mean, we built the plaza. We, uh, we had a designer who worked with John O'Brien. He was fantastic and... You know, we were trying to do it in a reasonable, frugal way, as we always do when we build restaurants. And uh, we we decided, I don't know why, I don't know what we were uh, doing with our brains that day, but um, that we would GC it ourselves. And Meaning we weren't going to bring in a company to... General yeah. contractor. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we, we... We hired all the subs. And we managed all the contractors oh and paid yeah. them. And it was like, you know, Colby and John O'Brien would be having a beer and I'm over here like, wait, I got to pay the painter and where is the painter and who is the painter? And, <laughs> you know, so we, they'd pull them in and then they'd be like, okay, Meg, here, figure out the figure rest out of that. <laughs> like, okay. So it was very confusing just with the way that when you build, when you do building projects, there's... It's not that cut and dry, especially when you work with, you know, companies like the Plaza. There's certain things we had to do in order to get certain subs paid out and so on and so forth. So it was, it was a big project that was new. But it's fun to learn those kinds of things, out, you know, in the business that we're in. You know, you're not taught this stuff at culinary school. You know, yeah. you learn how to Julienne and product identification, but they don't really teach you how to GC a new restaurant that you're trying to open. Maybe that needs to be added to the yeah, curriculum. Maybe, There's yeah. a lot business owner. But yeah. There's a lot that needs to be added to the curriculum. It's just hard with, you know, depending on what city you're in or what county or what, you know, there's so many like just location that impacts, you know, building things. So and liquor licenses and all that jazz. Uh, lots of details to yeah. go through. And you guys are a family, you have kids. Mm -hmm. How do you guys I mean restaurants are long hours and yeah. no sleep and all that? How do you keep a balance with the family? Well, we've definitely um, gotten to the point where we're not living and dying and waking and sleeping in the restaurants like we used to. Um, we try to be home three or four nights a week with the kids to cook, or, and I usually cook dinner those nights mm -hmm. just for them to have some sort of, you know, normal. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're getting older. Yeah, they're a little older now, too. So, like, we can take them with us, and I know that they'll be occupied. I mean, the early, early days of Blue Stem, we had Maddie 
our daughter, Madeline, and she would, um, she, we had a swing in the kitchen. Mm. She would sit in there and swing for hours. <laughs> and we had one of those bouncy seats that we clipped into the wine room. So I have these great pictures of her, like, jumping up and down <laughs> with all this wine behind her. So, you know, when you have a baby, everyone, I remember they said, like, well, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I don't know. We're just going to we'll do. We'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll just <laughs> take go her and mm-hmm. she'll nap in the wine room, I guess. And then it's evolved to, you know, now we can take them with us and they can they'll eat anything which is helpful too so that's nice they're yeah. good little eaters you would own. expect yeah right? which yeah. Is, sounds cliche but they, they actually do love to try food do they have any interest in getting in the kitchen professionally is it are it too early or it's a little early my my son definitely wants to help me cook all the time he always like of course comes up at the last minute when i'm like trying to like pull things through like, can I help you, Dad? And I'm like, well, if you would have come like an hour ago, yes. He also loves like anything with fire or knives. He yeah. loves the dish machine at work. He just yeah. thinks that's awesome. <laughs> that's anything what... that's big and loud. And <laughs> Maddie doesn't, I don't think she'll be in the business, but she might host. She's but she seems like she has a sort of a interest in pastry I see from some of the Instagram yeah, she going likes through. to bake at home with me. And yeah. Colin, um, I, last time I saw you, Colby, we were out at the American Royal and yes. he was uh, near Fire and Knives. Yes, mm-hmm. yep. yes, doing all of those things. Yeah, he, he, I think when he gets older and he gets to do a little bit more, he'll, he'll be interested in it, but... He'll he'll spend some time behind that dish machine. I'm not worried about that at all. Yeah, <laughs> the dish machine will be best friends. Right, right now, it's kids' queue and dishwashing. Huh? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Barbecue a family passion? She hates it. <laughs> I don't, I, uh, I don't know. Not your favorite. <laughs> not my favorite. But I love it. It's and, necessary. Though. Yeah. Well, and let's talk a little bit about how frustrated you were when you first started cooking, because. Um, you know, I think it's really interesting when chefs try to cook barbecue. What's, oh, right. what's different about it that frustrates you? And It's so, I mean, the, the barbecue world is definitely a follow the leader kind of a thing. You have to, I, I don't, I understand it. I, I, it's a little amazing to me how it all works, but the guys that win, they, they win for real. I mean, they, 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 they cook every weekend. Um, I know like Travis Clark, who's one of the big guys that won a couple of years ago. I mean, he cooked like 52 competitions, which is every weekend wow. and they all, they spend a lot of time together. They all communicate with each other. They all know what rubs, they all know what sauces, what injections, all that stuff. And as for someone up, someone new coming in, if they don't know these things, they're not even going to come close. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a small knit community. And if you want to win, you got to kind of get in with the group. And so you have you have a little expert help going on. I do. In a business partner and a friend who <laughs> yes. lets you. So I found you over at Oklahoma, uh, I should say Joe's yeah, KC. Joe, yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, there are business partners in the rise. And uh, yeah, I was already, I mean, I've always been interested in barbecue. But when we met uh, Jeff and Joy, I, I really kind of grabbed onto Jeff's arm and he kind of showed us the way. And, you know, everyone wants to kind of learn, kind of goes off into their own direction. But, yeah, they were a huge help when it when we first got into it. So he, he laughed. He was telling me, yeah, Colby gets so frustrated, just yeah. so frustrated. <laughs> so, like, are you, are you getting better scores? Well, I mean, we have. It's what's crazy is we'll do really well at one. And the problem, one of our biggest problems is, is I can't cook that much. I only get to do like five or six a year. And that's a lot. And so, you know, we'll we'll nail it like the Sertoma one, which is coming up in Lawrence. We did that a couple of years ago and placed in every single category and missed Grand Champion by like a tenth of the point, tenth of a point. 
but then we cooked the next weekend and just were did terribly. So it's just sometimes it's judging, sometimes it's you know. It, but at the the most important thing is is John and Ryan, who are my two main guys, my two main chefs. Just to be able to cook with them and spend the weekend with them, like we used to cook at Bluestem all the time, which we don't anymore. Um, mm. It's just a good way for me to spend time with them and cook, and it's fun. Doing a little hanging out is always a good thing. Yes. <laughs> hanging out. That's the part Meg likes. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> no, it's the part. Okay. Let's be honest. It's the part she doesn't like, yes, right? That's <laughs> true. That too. It's a long hours. It's just a long, it's a long weekend. Well, and I'm a little bitter because I've entered into dessert competitions, these barbecue competitions, and Not it doesn't always well. go well for me. <laughs> so this, this must be really frustrating. Come on. You guys are like... James Beer right. well, I think that's what's, level chefs. And, that's and what's like, really interesting about the barbecue competitions because the first time we did the Royal, we, we went, we were there. I forget why we, were, why we were there, but we had just met Jeff and Joy and we were newly partners with them. And we did like kind of fancy barbecue stuff, like a blue stem take on it for this like interview. I forget what it was. And obviously nothing came of it. And we realized very quickly that, this was not our normal world. This is not our world. <laughs> this is not what we normally do. And we needed to fall in line as to what the culture of this kind of cooking was in order to do anything with it. And so, I mean, I submitted a few pies, realizing that everybody, like at the American Royal, they want is cheesecake. And cheesecake's like one of my least favorite desserts in the <laughs> wide world. So I was like, oh, I hate cheesecake. I don't even have a good recipe for a cheesecake. I don't even serve cheesecake. Um, so I did some pies. And one year I had, I got 10th place out of like 60 some odd people. And then the rest of the years was like 80th or 60th or something. And so I threw in the towel. How are the kiddos doing in the... Kids, Colin, did Colin got like what? Like Colin got seventh, seventh, or twelfth. Maddie got seventh, fifth, or seventh, or I don't know. The kids placed all right. It's always you just never know, you know. And it's it's more about just going out there. Yeah, just hanging out. The experience of everything. Mm -hmm. So interesting. You think of barbecue and you think of how personal it is for so many people, Mm -hmm. and then for the elite level of it to be so complicated. Oh, it's it's it is for real. I mean, those guys. That's all they do. Hmm. And I'm. It's fun. I don't. I couldn't do it at that level. I don't want to do it at that level. I mean, it's it's definitely. But if you watch, I mean, again, there's a handful of them here, but there's guys from all over the country that spend every single weekend together. You know, they hmm. meet down at this competition, meet at that competition. And it's funny because we'll, you know, if we sign up for one, we start to look to see who signed up and we're like, oh, we won't do well at that one. <laughs> we won't do well at that I one. I know the competition. Yeah. What's the coolest technique you've learned from the barbecue circuit? Um, I think, I mean, I'm coolest. I don't know. I think I've learned a lot more about injecting and stuff like that. I wouldn't use that in traditional. Cooking. Right. Right. But. You know, I, I never really understood why you did that. Now I do, obviously. But why? I'll, Tell well, us why. A, a, lot of, a lot of the brines and stuff and injections that they put into barbecue have phosphates in them. So it's kind of a chemical reaction to make it poof and when the heat's added to it and stuff like that. So there's some chemistry involved. In so it. they're blowing up the meat? Kind of. Yeah. It's crazy. If you like the briskets, then they, if they turn them down to what's called the postage stamp, which is a small... Thing and they cook hot now. I mean, they cook everything. That's that's another thing. Hot and thing. fast, not hot, low and slow. Yeah, <laughs> hot, hot and fast, like three. In the drum three, cookers, right? Are yeah, you the using brisket those? for our brisket, we do. And if no. we if we do it right, when you lift it to check on it, it should look like a pillow. It blows up. the The flat does. 
So it's, yeah, it's kind of creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Jill and I talked a lot about that. We had a whole podcast about hot and fast versus low and slow. What do you think? Are you a fan of both? No, hot and fast is the only way. Really? Yeah. More party time, right? Well, it's just I know how to do it better now. Yeah. You know, it's like I, I understand the result. The barbecue world, of, I'm sorry, we're hijacking this into a No, it's thing. awesome. Um, <laughs> the old world of barbecue just it doesn't exist anymore. It's it's the new style is what's, wow. yeah, it's a totally different world. And I don't think most people in Kansas City no. have even figured that out, which is why I told Lindsay, come on, we got to do this podcast. And she's like, whoa, that sounds really interesting because exactly. I have noticed, you know, anybody who's in the restaurant business is doing hot and fast. And, yeah. and then suddenly a couple of years ago, I was like, what are these upright drum cookers? I want one of those. That yeah. looks really cool. And everybody's like, well, it just goes so much faster. And you get to party more and, it, and it's great results. And I'm like, I under, for some reason, I understand that kind of cooker a little bit better. And also for consistency being, and yeah. And being married to a Brazilian, they, they've yeah. always done hot and fast grilling. So I'm like, I get this, um, the low and slow I had to learn. And I don't think I have the patience for it. I think that's yeah. totally the image. I think most people have though, of Kansas city barbecue is, is the low and slow the, the pit. Well, and I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's what for most people that want to cook in their backyard, that's what it's all about. They can low and slow, you know, there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with it. But, you know, it's the, you know, we cook just the brisket on the drums and then I have a jambo, like a trailer thing that I cook everything else on. But, you know, I, I it's for the barbecue world, it's, <coughs> I'm sorry, oh, I keep oh. coughing. Um, for the barbecue world, it's important because there is a time frame and you have to get stuff turned in. So, and when you do it low and slow, you've got more of an opportunity to ruin things. Hmm. You know, where you do it fast, you can watch it, you're paying attention, and it's done. And you go. So, right, babe? Totally. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Megan. We we know that you're not a fan of cheesecake. No. What is your favorite? Like, if you had one last dessert to create, what would it be? Uh, I don't know. The question. (laughs) I really like a good souffle. Hmm. I love, like, chocolate devil's food cake. You know, if I was going to, if someone was going to make me anything, because people are like, what should we bring over for dessert for your dinner or something? I mean, just a good old fashioned. You, know, you mean people will bake for you? I'd be terrified. Right. They totally. do. Yeah. I'd never show you my <laughs> pie crusts. They may taste fine, but they're really ugly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, people do. Yeah. And, I, you know, when people keep it simple, I've, I've done a few like pie. I've judged for the Prairie Village Pie Contest. And I'm always like, I always go towards the basics, you know, a good old fashioned apple pie or you know when people try to get all crazy and bedazzle stuff is when you get out of hand <laughs> how do, how do you bedazzle works. pie what does that uh, look like i've seen some weird stuff strangely that's what works at the american royal more bedazzle, bedazzle. Uh, yeah that's booze, why i don't more understand booze in it, it and bedazzle it and yeah i remember there was this one dessert <laughs> where they had shots of baileys and all these things just sticking out of it and oh. <laughs> i was just like oh my god what what is that all about if it's, you can light it on fire yeah <laughs> i don't know so yeah but keep it simple have you it's tried really a good. souffle could you could you run it fast enough for the <laughs> no, judges to no. get it without it no. <laughs> No, we've done some pies, and they. The one year we got all bedazzlement, we didn't we didn't score very well. We did pumpkin and dry ice coming out of it, and kind of some crazy stuff. And I thought it was very cute because it's around Halloween was when the American Royal was at the time. And you're not kidding, people didn't go over add very well. tricks to the pies, basically. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's all like I, one year they these guys had like this whole chocolate pig with 
that was skewered <laughs> with marshmallows and yeah there's and a see lot you know the the they, techniques oh, that i see you know at some of the barbecue competitions are you know the chocolate isn't tempered you know it's uh, you know it's a home cooked game it's i a think home for cook. that for the sides and for the desserts yeah. whereas it's very professional f- yes. for the meat yeah the sides are casseroles and things like that right so right. which can be great but. exactly yeah. Um, but not what you do every day. No, yeah, <laughs> we try. So, what are you guys working on now? You've done you've done cookbooks. You've got pending awards. You've won past awards. You've uh, got got the kids cooking in the kitchen. Uh, you got all this staff to work with. I mean, what what is next? I think just stability. Just mm. you know, just yeah. getting everything, and it, we're there. But just maintaining and and there's some systems we still want to fine tune. Um, we have a, a manager that we want to put into a position where he's going to all three restaurants like we do to help us just kind of pinpoint problems and and fix issues. Um, so trying to get onto a level where we can do that, I think is the next step, because if we were to do another restaurant, oh my God, um, (laughs) we definitely need to have these systems very, very like tied down and secure. And we need someone that can help us with overseeing because we always laugh, you know, with all the things that Colby and I do, you know, I'm HR, he's this, he's that, you know, we need someone else to become, another force with us to help manage and our office staff has grown and that's been good. But, you know, it's just trying to get all the details dialed down is the next step, I think. Yeah. It usually takes us four or five years before we start talking about another R word. (laughs) (laughs) Would the R word move? I have no idea. Far away in another city? No, I don't think I... I think so. We We dabbled with it a few times and we get people coming to us constantly like there's Mm. this place opening or this mall opening or this location somewhere and wherever. And, you know, we, we really want to be able to see it in, on a day, in a day if we need to. And something to get onto a plane to go manage seems very daunting to Colby and I. Yeah. I mean, you're both artists in what you do. I imagine you already, you, you can leave. You can step away for a couple mm-hmm. days and take yeah. the sure. family on vacation. Yeah. yeah. How hard was that and how hard is that? To loosen the reins of control, I guess, you no, know? Not very hard. Not very hard? <laughs> <laughs> we have a really, really good team in place. Um, I mean, as owners, you never really let it go. You know, we're out of town, but we're always plugged in. Yeah. You know, if there's an <clears throat> issue or if there's something that needs our attention, we'll stop what we're doing and, you know, call the restaurant or whatever. But, you know, it, it's it takes our team. Our team has to be strong, and they are. And um, you've got to trust them, too. I mean, the early, early days of Blue Stem, we would you know, open every door, close at night, we mm. would count all the cash. And there was, there was a, a level of us being new and still trying to learn it. And it was also a trust factor because, you know, it's theft is a big thing in restaurants and we didn't have the team yet to know that we could leave it in the hands of them. And so now we do. And yeah, it gets better with time. It's a different life, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But this is what we worked for. You know, I didn't plan on being at that stove for the rest of my life. It's hmm. too, it's a young man's game and it'll make you old real quick and you know, it's not good for you. So hmm. who are, who are you watching in your um, organization and maybe around town, maybe people who've been with you, left you or, mm-hmm. or just chefs you are watching that are young and you know, their game is something you want to follow. Oh, who I mean, is that? who are some of the good chefs? Yeah. yeah. Who are the good young ones, the up and comers, the ones who haven't oh, been man. nominated for a 
James Beard semifinalist Ooh, yet. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> that is tough. I, would, I really hope that some of the nominees this year move on for sure. I really hope Michael and Nick uh, make it to semifinalists because <clears throat> no one has since I won, and I think that's a shame. You know, it's there's some super talent and, you know, there was a lot of campaigning that Megan and I had to do to get to where we got with that stuff. And, you know, it's it's harder. I feel like it's harder now. Is that because there's more people or it's become a little more political? Um, I don't think it's any more political than it used to be, but yeah, yes and no. I mean, I, I think what people get really confused in how the beard system works. Let's talk about that for just a little bit. You what know, do you guys know when about you that? see the nominations? I mean, what we're talking about right now is the semifinalist list. So this is like the first first round of mm-hmm. draft picks or whatever. You and once upon a time, to. I don't think they even issued. They had the semi-list, but I feel like we didn't know. Yeah, right. they didn't. We didn't you know didn't, if you they, made it on this. Yeah, semi-list. you weren't told. Right, right. So now everybody knows. Yeah, you go from the semifinalist list, which is twenty-five people in every category. So Colby's outstanding chef, I'm in pastry chef. We're one of twenty-five, and then you have twenty-five in every region for. And there's other categories too, but for the chef regions, there's twenty-five in every region. And then it goes down through one more voting process. And through that voting process, they go down to five. And the people that can vote on those five are only people who have actually eaten in the restaurant. So, you know, we we would go and eat and do events constantly with other chefs because we knew that they were voters. And it's really just about exposure. You want people to see you, see your food, shake your hand, talk to you. Hi, we're Megan, we're Colby, you know, at all the James Beard Awards we went to, you know, just campaigning, introducing yourself, trying to get your face out there. It's very it's very political in that sense. So it's like if someone doesn't know you and they haven't eaten at your restaurant, they're certainly not voting for you. So getting yourself out there. And then from the five, that's when you go to the awards. And then from there, there's another group of people who are picking the winner for the actual award. And then that's it. So we're at like the the second step in. I think it's the 24th or the 27th is when the finalists come out. Yeah, they'll narrow it down. And it used to be that was the only thing that that you saw. Yeah. And journalism... Awards actually come out. They don't do semifinalists, so they right. just mm-hmm. come out with the four or five nominations, and then you go to the awards. Gotcha. Right. Actually, I don't. I don't even know if it's five. Always, it might. It might be as few as three. Anyway, um, you can get nominated several different times, though, in different categories. Unlike chefs, where once you win the Midwest, you don't. Right. You don't get that again. You can only be in the restaurant or Mm -hmm. service or pastry chef or humanitarian of the year. So, um, so yeah, three times I was nominated one time. Yep. I won, but, um, I mean, it's a process. And I think sometimes it's, you know, when we see these, like the lists of chefs this year and, um, Taylor two from 1900 Barker's Mm. amazing. I think when you see these other, um, Kansas City recognition coming around, it's really a show of growth, you know, and and the expansion of our region. Because at the time when Colby was nominated, it was just, he first was in, Chicago was still included, wasn't it? Or no? No. That's when it was pulled out. I'm not sure about this exactly, but Michael Bauer, who used to be the for the Chronicle, is from here. San Francisco Chronicle. He he grew up in Kansas and worked at the Star. Yes. um, But... We did not overlap. So so he came and ate at Bluestem right after we opened. And I think he was just in town. And actually, he has been a ride 
dozens of times. He comes and sees his family and they come up and eat it. And he's so nice. Like, I can't imagine him doing what he does there because everyone's terrified of him. <laughs> he's not doing anything to us. He's just coming to have a good time. So we <laughs> talk to him quite a bit. Um, but when he ate at Blue Stem, he did a, he did a online, like a, um, I guess it was a blog post or something on the Chronicles thing. And strangely enough, they split this. They split the region that year after he came, and I know he was a big part of the. He just did a story about how the Midwest <clears throat> is growing and changing. Yeah, and like a year later, yeah, Chicago. Yeah, they, they split Chicago it. out, but now it's kind of Minneapolis has taken over quite a bit, and I mean they've got their food scene up there is you know on fire. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm hoping. I'm just hoping that Kansas City can get back in there because Minneapolis is doing what Chicago did. Years ago, by kind of manhandling everybody else, so yeah, Gavin Kaysen. yeah, because you're competing yeah. with those bigger cities, and it is it's about exposure. So, how many people are flying into Kansas City to eat just to come to eat? You know, some yeah. do, but yeah. not as many. Say, if you're traveling to Chicago or New York or even maybe Minneapolis to eat, so it's it's part of you know getting people to come to our city, not only experience our museums and, you know, our Royals baseball or whatever people come to Kansas City to explore, restaurants have to be part of that conversation. A destination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think Queer Eye is going to help. Oh, my I, goodness. I really do. I think it will. Yeah. Because we have some friends that came in that came because they're avid Seahawks fans. <laughs> and they uh, came to see the Seahawks play the Chiefs like three times. They visited us. But from coming for football, they've discovered food. And mm. we've taken them around to not only barbecue, but our restaurants and other places. And, uh, yeah, they, they a lot of people have this. I had no idea Kansas City had this much here. Once is, you get them here. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is a great thing to hear. But I think Queer Eye is going to open that door, too. Well, you guys have been on the scene long enough. Let's talk just a little bit before we wind up here about how the scene has changed. The food, you mentioned earlier, not a lot of food TV when you guys started out. I can mm-hmm. remember when there was no food TV. Yeah, I remember the um, first food television show. And that was when I was like in junior high. Yeah, and it's changed so much. Um, and we are on the radar. Uh, before 1999, we would not have even been much in the conversation mm-hmm. um, when... The American Michael and Debbie won. Mm-hmm. Um, so now eight semifinalists from around. Here? Now eight, yeah, it's huh. pretty amazing. So, what's what's the most exciting change you've seen on the food scene in the last fifteen years? I just think that I mean, just the, the fact that it's not. Um, I feel like when we opened, no one did that. Like I think everyone thought we were crazy for opening around like the. You know, only experienced restaurant people did that, you know, and and now you're seeing a lot more people take the risk, put themselves out there. I think that's really special. I think um, I think there's been a good generation shift, too, because, you know, my parents and Colby's parents, a lot of going out to eat is only for a birthday or an anniversary. And, you know, the younger generation, they eat out five, six nights a week if mm. they want to. So having so many more choices to give people more variety has been really important. And I just think that the culture of we just eat out more um, has become a thing too. And then naturally Kansas city is giving people more choices by opening more and more restaurants. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I think a lot of people are just returning home too. I mean, I think almost everybody that's, yeah, it's finally cool to be where you're from. 
Yeah. You, know? you don't yeah. have to leave. No. If you're from Cleveland, it's cool to be from Cleveland. You know, if you're from Indianapolis, it's cool to be from Indianapolis. And I don't think it was like that when we first No, not at all. We were constantly apologizing. We would go to events and we would say, Kansas City, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and now when we go, we're from Kansas City, there's this, oh, wow, you know, people want to know. There's a want to know about Kansas City that didn't exist when we opened here. And individuality and identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We've heard from a lot of business owners and restaurant owners that it's been a really tough winter. Mm-hmm. Does that hit you guys or has it been? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yes. I mean, it's it's and I think for what I just said, too, there's a lot of restaurants, too. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, yeah. the, it's kind of thins everything out. I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. I think it's a reality. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's not been it's not been the ideal year. I mean, we've. We'll be fine. We we slide right through it, but um, you have to prepare for yeah. the snow days, and you know everyone always complains about the weather, <laughs> the right. people giving the weather, and just you know the drama behind. Don't leave your homes, yeah. um, <laughs> and restaurant owners are like, please, please leave your house, please risk your life, have a steak tonight, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you're keeping doors open. But I think if anything, the conversation should just be if you are going out, and if it is treacherous, go local. You know, choose a place that is close to home that's, you know, needs to be supported by the community. And I think that's where people should be eating or drinking. Put your snowshoes on and just go, right? Yeah. (laughs) And today should be the last snowflake we see for a while. Yeah, we hope hope. so. Do you have that on good authority? Do you have sources? (laughs) The weather people tell me they won't guarantee it. They keep refusing to guarantee, but yeah. Yeah, well, it's March in the Midwest. That's what I would right? say, too, is like, well, we do live in the Midwest, so winter's winter. Plan accordingly. 90 degrees or 9. You can't plan for anything. She's from Chicago. She I actually like the winter. But see, in some cities, nothing shuts down. It's just it, people go out. I mean, I was in Chicago two years ago, and their huge blizzard, and O'Hare was almost shut down. But everybody was out eating. <laughs> the roads were plowed, and people had snow boots on, and they're all drinking wine and hanging out. Well, if you wait for no snow, you'll never leave, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks thank you. Us. It's see been you. great. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.